Dutch Clay and Dorothy G. We're here on, on a wonderful Friday. We're talking about life in the theater and the theater of life. Yay! <laughs> and we have a fantastic guest. He is the CEO, well, I shouldn't say the CEO, but one of the, uh, <laughs> one of the, one of the uh, original uh, creative, uh, the uh, artistic director of Central Works, Gary Graves, teacher, playwright, uh, director. Uh, all around. What, what is your official title? What is your official title, Gary? I officially uh, am the uh, company co-director along with Jan Zweifler, who is a founding member of the company, which is now in its 27th year. Yeah. I thought you were a founding member. No, you're not. No, not, oh, not. No, okay. Uh, the new iteration, it, it, it evolved. Yeah. We'll talk more about it. All right. Yeah, so... Yeah, I'm just going to adjust you. Also, you have um, you have dials on your on your phone. <laughs> Norman is having headphone problems. I'm just telling that he can dial it down if you want to. Okay, you're all good. Okay, yes. cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of things that are going on. Uh, I was talking to you about uh, there's so many. Well, let's, let's just jump to current events. Um, um, McCain had there was quite a bit of um, <laughs> drama on Capitol Hill right. yesterday and today. You know, McCain votes yes to talk about the health care. No, he, he meets, he has a beautiful speech yes. that the liberals are so excited about. Mm-hmm. And then he votes. Right, exactly. They're like, yeah, 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 he's going to vote no. And then he votes yes to listen to the bill. And then right. they're upset. They're pissed off. Right. And then today, of course, he gives the thumbs down in front of Mitch McConnell, mm-hmm. which uh, really pisses him off. Gary, what do you think of the state of what's happening? I mean, I was in class one of your playwriting classes the day that uh, Trump was elected, and there was just a pall on the, on the class. You know, I've been teaching that class at the Berkeley Rep School of Theater um, for since, oh, like the early 2000s, mm-hmm. and um, it's always been on Tuesdays, nearly mm-hmm. always been on Tuesdays. Yeah. And so that meant um, I was in class when Obama was elected the first time. So at the break, at 8.30, it was like, Obama's in. Mm-hmm. Four years later, <laughs> Obama's in. Same thing. Mm-hmm. We were in class. Obama's in. He did it. He pulled it off. Mm-hmm. And then four years later. Yeah, exactly. Trump. Trump. And no one could believe it. And that was, of the three elections, mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, of the three Tuesdays, that was the most shocking of them. None of us, like, none of us could believe it. I remember hearing the radio, you know, before I went to class, class starts at 7. Mm-hmm. I went in, and it was probably about 6.30, and there was, like, you know, these, uh, you know, the electoral college was going to first this state and that state, and, like, it was, like, yeah, it's, like, it, it, the numbers were, like, 20 to 4, and I'm, like, 20 to 4 which way? Mm-hmm. It's like, no, it's Trump. I was like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I always say, an hour and a half later, yeah. somebody Googles, you know, we take a break, somebody right. says, it's his. And everybody was just like, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, right. I, and I remember walking home, not walking home, but walking to my car through downtown Berkeley in a daze. Right. You know, it was just like, what? What? Yeah. No, actually, I was, probably I was partly a days and partly like, wait a minute, I got to get to a television. Right. Or, you know, I got to hear what what happened. How is this possible? Right. Like, this can't be true. Right, right. 
Not that anybody had any answers. So has this affected, have you now programmed this into your classwork that, oh, yeah, wait, it's an election year. I should get ready for this. This is going to affect class tonight. Well, you know, I think I feel like a lot of people feel, which is whatever you do in life, you, you look for a way to do something about what you feel is right or what you feel is wrong. Yeah. So if you're in the theater, it's like you look for a way to work for what you believe in. You mm-hmm. know, so do you, as a playwright, do you write? How do you contend with this as a playwright? Or do you gravitate to a project as a director, as an actor as well? You know, right. if an actor senses a political affiliation with a project, right. it's like, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a special feeling, you know. It's a special feeling if you can converge your efforts in art with your political beliefs, your political, philosophical, moral beliefs, you know. And you're not always able to do that, mm-hmm. you know, because you got to make a living or... To, well, to be like an Alec Baldwin and yeah. say, well, this is, that was a funny joke. But now how far are we going to go with it? And, you know, it was clear pretty early on that he was like, no, this is really not about the joke. This yeah. is about me mm-hmm. making a political statement. And also Colbert, you know, he's announcing he's going to do a cartoon, a running cartoon on oh. Trump. Mm-hmm. It's something that he is producing. Um, but it's interesting what you're saying as an actor. I mean, it reminds me of being on stage. It's not about the emotion, but it's what are you going to do about it, you know? take it and then do something with it. I mean, I've been a part of, I remember um, there was a guy who passed away, Mike Ward, and he uh, did some shorts uh, across wires protesting Bush. Mm -hmm. It was the re-election of Bush, and uh, a series of uh, artists had written a bunch of one-acts about uh, how they felt about the Bush administration as part of their political, I guess, tithe and offering Mm -hmm. to to do something uh, for change. And so it's wonderful. I mean, a lot of us are adversely affected by what's happening uh, in the Trump administration and all the, the crazy things that are going on. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I launched a uh, podcast, another podcast, right. I'm American too. It's not about, yeah. yeah, yeah. it's basically about people who are not born in America and how they feel about what's going on. Mm-hmm. You can react, you can emote, you can say, oh my God, it's horrible. That's great, but what are you going to do about it? So that's, it's a, a wonderful lesson. Well, I got, and it's funny, um, 2001, mm-hmm. I was on my way to a rehearsal that morning, and I get to rehearsal, and there was another show rehearsing. By this point, everybody knows what's happened, and they basically tell us we're not going to have our rehearsal. These other people showed up, so they rehearsed. They're canceling a rehearsal. They're canceling the rest of the day. I had a reading. My company had a reading that night, and I had, we were doing an immigrant play. Mm -hmm. And she talked to her immigration lawyer because they were about to go to court. And the lawyer was like, you cannot do anything right now to get any attention. Right now, you need to. And so she pulled the play. So I had to, as a producer, I had to show up, tell everybody we were pulling the play, we were going to do another play, and then I basically recast another play on the fly that night. And I remember at the time, because the economy was kind of funky. Yeah. Um, and it was like, well, how is this going to affect it? Nobody's going to want to go to theater. 
That season, so many shows, 2001, 2002, that season, so many shows sold out. People were hungry. It wasn't about political stuff. They were happy to see political stuff. But more than that, they just needed to get out. And I was like, oh, good. Now we can really, whatever our message is, now we can really get that into an audience. Yeah. And I'll share one last story before we um, do our interview with uh, Gary Graves. Right around September, our first rehearsal for The Marriage of Benton Boo, mm-hmm. Christopher Duran comedy, uh, directed by uh, Raymond Ray, I think. I don't know if you know Raymond Ray. But in any case, um, our first rehearsal was September 11th, 2001. And, of course, we canceled uh, the rehearsal. Um, but to make a long story short, that was a such a successful run of The Marriage of Benton Boo. We ran it again because people really just needed to laugh. They needed something else, something to do with their energies. They just needed to 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 go somewhere and to take their minds off of what's going on. So, I'm not sure that's the case now. I, I, I might contrast that with the, with the situation now. I don't know what, what you guys are experiencing, but what I've been hearing lately, let's say this summer, mm-hmm. you know, just the last couple, few weeks, months, mm-hmm. is that theaters are having a hard time getting people uh, to attend. Mm-hmm. And it's not for lack of an interest on, on tackling the political issues. Because mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of people are interested in that, and a lot of people are doing it. Right. As a playwright, I find there's, or in, in terms of playwriting, I find there's lots of interest, lots of playwrights. You know, they're living in it like we are, and they want to they work with that. The thing about Trump is things, that story is unfolding so fast. Yeah. You can't keep up with it. Right. I mean, talk about yeah. a moving target. Right. And you mentioned the stuff, you know, we talked about the stuff that happened with McCain mm-hmm. and Trump. Because yeah. that's McCain and Trump. Right. right. Um, you know, it just that's just the last 24 uh-huh. hours, uh-huh. you know. And this God knows what he's, t- what he's tweeting now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. right. So it's so fast and it's so crazy yeah. that if you, you know, if you try to, if you try to, I, I think is a difficult figure to deal with in a serious way. Yeah. Um, in the theater anyway. It's, it's kind of, it's perfect for Saturday Night Live. Sure. But also the, the late night TV. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, you mentioned Colbert. Yeah. Uh, but all of them. Yeah. are, you know, dramatically opposed, and they're out there yeah. in right. daily, you know, well, we're using the model of the Daily Show, mm-hmm. these daily critiques and, you know, um, mm-hmm. y- you know, from a very humorous, it's, from, it's in a humorous context, but it's extremely political, right. and it's dramatically anti-administration. I mean, it's, it's yeah. really intense. I have a question for you, because you're, were you, I, I don't want to out your age or whatever, um, but it makes me think of McBird. Um, sure. The, um, I forget who the playwright was who wrote McBird, but McBird was a satirical writing uh, comedy, I guess it's a black comedy, Twisting Macbeth, but talking about Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. Kennedy was Kennedunk, and basically it was a political commentary yeah. on by liberals against the Lyndon B. Johnson yeah. administration right around of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you were around during that time or whatever. Maybe you know you're not really that old or whatever. But does it sound? Does it feel the same? Or, or even Nixon? I don't know if we're having the. I mean, I think that's what you, Gary, were starting to get to is 
how is theater responding? Are we having a response to this that an audience is ready to receive? And you're right, the number one thing is Trump is beating all of us in the polls. Trump is beating all of us in the ratings because we're waiting to hear what he does next. And if you pick up something that happened last week, your last week's news, nobody really cares. There's stuff happening now. Well, I think there also, though, might be a... I think people are tempted to withdraw now mm-hmm. um, because it's so scary. Um, it, and so in the theater, because we're artists and we want to be political, we're really interested in dealing with these issues. I'm not so sure the audience is interested in consuming it or right. participating right. in it or facing it or thinking about it because you can't get away from it. So. Right. Do you want to go to the theater to get some more of what you're getting all day long? Sure. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. That, so it's, I, I'm, I'm not advocating escapism, but I'm wondering about, I mean, because that's why I mentioned the figure, the numbers, yeah. the attendance figures. Um, I don't know. I, you know, the jury's out there. But we're also up against, I think, the phenomena of Netflix really going big time. Yeah, you know, we've been talking about how there are other distractions out there, not just Netflix, but YouTube and other things. There are other, you know, venues. I've mentioned many times before in other podcasts how ESPN has let go of a bunch of folks. And um, CNN, you know, CNN, NBC, all, all the big networks, even the movie theaters having problems. We're, we're working more frantically and more hectically every day. People's lives are really, really complicated and fragmented to some extent because of the technological connection into the workplace, which Mm -hmm. kind of gives you this 24-hour work cycle thing where you're always connected. So it's just, it's harder, it's actually, I think, harder than ever to get to the theater. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, I mean, who wants to drive? You can't drive across the bridge. Good God. And you know it would want to do that. (laughs) Right. so, you know, and you just, it, it's hard, the temptations or the convenience of having stuff in your home and the safety of your home, the whole, the, the ease of just shutting all that out and settling into your television, we're competing with that. Yeah. You, you have to want to be out with a community, you have to want to be out with people face to face, sharing a communal Ritual, which is the performance of a play, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Are you guys having that discussion, Central Works? I mean, we'll, we will definitely plug shows and stuff, and so don't be shy about talking about it. But right now, you've got to show up. It's been a winter week. Yeah, yeah we're in the third week of winter. Um, and it's the, the third very, week of winter in July. That's <laughs> right. We decided to do winter and summer. Um, and uh, it's it's doing very well by all appearances. Um, we got to mention the TVI. TVA says it's the thing to watch. Well, do you have a little blurb for it? Well, yeah, sure. It's a play. Um, it's a family drama, um, and it's about uh, well, Grandma and Grandpa uh, made a pact a long time ago. Uh, they're actually he's he's a scientist and she's a literary literature teacher, mm. and they made a pact many years ago that, or some time ago, we don't exactly know when, that if, when the time came, they, they would go out together. Mm-hmm. Well, the time's come for her, she's got some sort of illness which 
it's not named, but it, it has many of the uh, symptoms of Alzheimer's. Sure. She's losing her faculties. Mm -hmm. She's suffering from these spells that we experience one of, which with her early on in the play. She's losing herself, and she can no longer work. She's a poet, and she can't work anymore. Mm -hmm. But her husband, though he's retired, he can still work. Mm -hmm. He's not ready to go. Mm -hmm. So she wants to go, and he doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so she has to look elsewhere for what to do about this. Mm -hmm. And it's a Thanksgiving play. Mm -hmm. um, so the kids are on their way over. The two sons mm -hmm. are joining them for Thanksgiving, and one of them is married to a very rather controlling woman who's now taking over the the, the ritual of the of the Thanksgiving. Uh, and there's a granddaughter too. Mm -hmm. And the granddaughter's mother um, has uh, died when she was twelve. In an incident which is interpreted differently, one by the grandmother and one by the granddaughter. The granddaughter feels that it was an act of suicide, that she threw herself in front of the car. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the, mother, the grandmother, whose daughter it was who died, um, says it was an accident. But it's the granddaughter that the grandmother has to turn to for assistance mm -hmm. in making her way out. Right. Mm -hmm. cool. And so that's the question of the play. What's going to happen there? I love the simplicity. I mean, the simplicity of, you know, you have a plot, and I think it's something you've talked about in your classes. The plot can be simple, but it can still be complex in itself. I mean, mm -hmm. just, you know, you have a man and a woman who made, who made a pact, whatever the pact is, and all of a sudden, later on, okay, are you going to commit to what, you say, what we say we're going to do? Right. But, you know, two people already, I mean, that alone. Of course, there are other complexities in the play itself, but mm -hmm. it sounds like that's the core mm -hmm. uh, plot. And uh, it's simple, but it's still very complex. And it cuts across, you know, all cultures. I mean, you know, I can relate to it. I'm sure you can relate right. to it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it seems to touch everybody, you know, like one degree of separation between mm -hmm. you and some element of this issue that's going on, whether it's your parent or <coughs> a friend whose parents or, mm -hmm. you know, an in-law or the, the network of your family sure. you know, and friends. And also memory. It sounds like, you know, like one person remembers the past one way, but someone else remembers it another way. I mean, yeah. I, I can think about my family, you know, right. that it happens all the time. I think we talked about uh, that. Well, too. there are all kinds of stories and I've gotten to the point where I just don't even bother with certain things with my mother anymore. I love my mother. I respect my mother. I appreciate my mother. But her version of stories, I will go check in with my siblings and say, do you remember it that way? Because I don't remember it that way. Mm -hmm. And occasionally they do have a different memory than I have, mm -hmm. which is different from my mother's. That's family. <laughs> yeah. It's juicy for theater, though. Yeah. And, I mean, it definitely fits in Central Works. If you don't know, folks don't know Central Works. Um, they're a wonderful little company in Berkeley. Um, been producing at the City Club for a long time now. Mm -hmm. Since 2002, I guess 15 years there. Mm -hmm. On Durant Avenue, right? Yeah. 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 And in fact, there's a poster in Mesmeric Revolution. Yeah. Do you see that? I do. <laughs> I, we, we love the wall. We love being able to refer to the wall. Mm -hmm. um, but to take 
these stories and fit them into a very small space and still give you a sense of that whole world is, mm-hmm. is the trick that Central Works keeps trying to rediscover. Yeah. And the magic of Central Works, I mean, just working. I mean, I was very, very impressed with Central Works when I worked with you guys in 2012. It's such a small space. You think, my God, that you can't do anything in this space. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no, um, what do you call it, the, the back? I mean, there's, there's no, no backstage. There's, yeah, there's no, no wings. Right, there's no wings. But it forces the playwright. This is where you have to, what you have to work with. Now what are you going to do about it? And, uh, and also just the process. I think it was Aaron Henney yeah. who had written um, his Merrick Revelation. And just the, the process, I think, of just working with the playwright and saying, okay, this is wrong, this, and we need to focus on this, and what about this, and these are the certain questions. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen a company go through that process with a playwright. Uh, usually it's, okay, we've got the work, see you later, mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll work with it. Can you talk about the process of Central Works on how, you know, how it's difficult for me to describe it, but you can describe it better. Sure. Well, um, Central Works uh, are, are, I don't know, it's our motto, but it's our, uh, our, our byline is we're the new play theater. I mean, that's, that's what we do. We do all new plays. We do four of them a year. Um, and we get new plays from different sources. Sometimes we just find a play that's been developed somewhere else and we do it like we did a play of uh, Michael Sullivan's called Recipe. He had finished it a while ago. It had workshopped. They happened to have a, a stage reading of it in our space and I said, it's a good play. And then we did a show with, with Michael and he said, hey, what about my play Recipe? And I said, sure, it's great. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it. Um, mm-hmm. Um, that's a bit more unusual. Usually we develop the plays, though, and we have one sort of um, a, a kind of ongoing development program called the Writer's Workshop, in which I invite twice a year, you know, once in the spring and once in the, in the, uh, once in the summer, and one, no, what is it, once in the fall and once in the spring, I should say. Um, we have these, it's a 12-week session. I invite eight writers to come in and develop scripts, and then we read them all. You know, we read all eight of them. Uh, at the end of that workshop, and sometimes plays go through more than one session. Sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. I think we've had about a half dozen plays um, come out of that. Uh, one of the plays we did this year, um, uh, Into the Hundreds, came out of the writer's workshop. That was a Jesse Puttermill play. And then there's this other way we develop plays, which is which was uh, what we call the Central Works Method, which is what we used in the show you were in. Uh, Reg, which is called Mesmeric Revelation. Aaron Henney, the playwright and the director in that case, came to me because he was attracted to our theater and attracted to our method of development. And um, this is actually the second show he did with us. But um, after he did one with us, he came back to me and he had another this other idea. He said, um, there's this unusual Edgar Allan Poe story called Mesmeric Revelation. And he wanted it uh, and there was also the story of uh, Lavoisier, who uh, is this scientist uh, who wanted to get into the Académie Française, um, or who was an, uh, like the sort of the, the lead adjudicator yeah. of um, the Académie Française, and Mesmer, mm-hmm. the guy who we get the word mesmer, uh, mesmerized, mesmerized from. Yeah. He wanted to be in the Academy Francaise. 
And so he, he, he wanted to have a sort of, you know, application for admission into the Academy Francaise as this play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the idea. And that was crossed with this idea of, uh, from the Edgar Allan Poe story. So I said, okay, how many actors? And he said, uh, I can do it with two. And, okay, so we had an idea for a play. We had, uh, we needed two caster, uh, two actors, um, and we set an opening date. That's the first part. Wow, before before anything, anything was written. Well, yeah, because mm-hmm. um, everything follows from the opening date, mm-hmm. right? And until then, everything is kind of like blue sky. Right. And, oh, wouldn't that be fun? And, well, maybe we should rewrite it this way. But once you pick an opening date, everything follows from that. So then we cast a play, unwritten, um, with two actors. Brought you in, probably, by that time. Reg, as the stage manager. Our sound designer, uh, Greg Sharpen, who does, he, he does all our, he's done all work. Mm-hmm. And I believe Tammy Berlin was yeah, the costume our, our costume designer. Um, and then we schedule out ten workshop meetings. And Norman, you were in a play we developed this way too, no, which is Lotomania. Oh, yeah, and Inspector General, we did that way yeah. too. Yeah, um, those are all uh, method plays. We, you schedule out ten. Uh, well, at the first meeting with that group, mm-hmm. you schedule out. That's the that's the writer, the director, same person in this case, the actors, the sound designer. You schedule out nine more meetings. That's a total of. Um, 30 hours, because each of the meetings is three hours. And that spans anywhere from uh, as little as three months mm-hmm. to as much as nine months. You see around six months, mm-hmm. four, five, six months, somewhere in there. And that's the development timeline. That's all in advance of the rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Those ten meetings unfold over several months like that. And during that span of meetings, at first, the group is just digging into the subject matter as a sort of group research effort. Mm-hmm. You know, who was Mesmer? Who was Lavoisier? Now, does this include the actors or just the No, it, it definitely, very much includes the actors. Okay. Um, and, and we just look at it. We dig up everything we can about the subject matter um, for a meeting or two or maybe three. And, as, and then we just talk about uh, what we find. We share the research. We talk about ideas. We have the base idea that the writer brought in, um, and then at some point in that span of 10 meetings, the writer starts to bring in scene material, uh, scripted work, um, as the play begins to take shape, and then the actors read it, and then we react to it as a group, and we say, okay, so what's new about this compared to the idea we thought we had? What ideas does it open up? What problems does it create? What new directions? As well as things that are unfolding in the news or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and the player, so then the playwright writes the play with the cast over that expanse of time, and it's kind of like an immediate testing ground. It's like having a lab at your disposal as a theoretical yeah. scientist. It's, it's, it's play crafting. I mean, it's yeah, almost you can like test it out. You can test out the material immediately mm-hmm. with the actors who are going to do, who are going to be in the production. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the play takes shape. You say have a, a you have an expanse of time where the group can wrap their head around the idea of the play so that by the first rehearsal, 
usually, if things go well, the objective in that span of 10 um, meetings is for the playwright to, the minimum objective is for the playwright to complete a first draft of the play by the end of the workshop period. Because mm-hmm. um, then you're going to go into rehearsal. And it's, we prefer to go into rehearsal with a script uh, rather than not a script. Um, usually, or I would say often, playwrights get to second or third or multiple drafts um, in that expanse. Once in a while, we don't make it. And there have, there have been some really close calls uh, where you go into rehearsal with a, you know, uh, a script in flux, Unfinished, yeah. sure. <laughs> which is again, you know, the, so the opening date is approaching, and nothing focuses the mind like yeah. an intractable <laughs> opening date. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say some scripts have been late, some have been early in that span, um, but it doesn't really, you know, some have gone through dramatic. Uh, uh, revision and rehearsal, and some have gone through minimal revision and rehearsal, and there's no clear correspondence between w- what makes for a good play. Right. You know, sometimes it's a smooth process, the plays a flop. Sometimes it's a tumultuous process, and the plays a hit. Um, mm-hmm. You just can't really predict it, um, yeah. and you can't really repeat it either. Each one of the workshops is defined by right. the project and the group. Yeah. You know? yeah. How, how did it? How did it create? I mean, who who created this? I guess the Central Works method. Well, I brought the idea to the theater um, after I had as a, in a grad, I was a grad student at Berkeley, uh, working on my PhD in the theater arts department in the late '80s and very early '90s, and I, and I don't know, it was around 1990, 91, maybe it was 1990. The Berkeley Rep did a production of Carol Churchill's Mad Forest, or I should say Mad Forest, and it was directed by Mark Wayne Davey, and he had been a member, uh, and both Carol Churchill and Mark Wayne Davey, um, and Les Waters, who was at the Berkeley Rep until recently, um, were part of this group uh, in Britain in the 1970s called Joint Stock, um, in which they developed a method of development which is similar to what I described, but distinctly different. Um, and I had an opportunity to work as a, as a grad student. There was a relationship at Cal with Berkeley Rep, and I got to work as a, a research assistant on the production. And Mark Wayne Davey recreated the sort of process by which the play was developed, mm-hmm. though without the playwright. In this case, the script was already formed. But he went through a lot of this joint stock technique, and I saw that from uh, a backstage point of view. I was in rehearsal while watching it, and that led me to, there's a book about it, about joint stock method, which now if you go through it and you see the shows they did in the 70s, it's like a who's who of the British theater, you know, um, it's amazing. Uh, the people that were involved with that company that now have gone on to prominence in the British theater world. Um, so I studied that method, or I researched that method a little bit, and then um, adapted it to what I thought Central Works could do, because I was de- I was developing plays with Central Works at that time myself, and then proposed to the group 
of company then. Why don't we try to do something like this at Central Works? And uh, Samantha King was the playwright um, that stepped into the breach there. And uh, Deb Fink and Jan Zweifler were the actors in that case, and I directed it. Um, then we did a play called Riddle at a place called the Berkeley City Club. Right. That was the first time we developed a play like that. And talk about a tumultuous development. I mean, we were really, we really didn't know what we were doing. And it all came together. It was a big hit. And we were really excited by it. Um, and the audience loved it. Um, and, um, and so we said, well... <coughs> Why don't we just do this? This is fun. Yeah. Especially since you've got a, a, such an idiosyncratic space like that. Because then we came back and we, got, we were resident there. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, this is the space. It's really difficult to do a lot of different plays in here. So what if we start with this, the place first mm-hmm. and then design the plays around the performance venue mm-hmm. and you can exploit the strengths and you know try to avoid them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the weaknesses or the traps of the space. And so that's why a lot of the plays that we do, people say, wow, it's just like, it's like the play was developed for them. Right, exactly. And that also applies to the actors because if you bring the actors in before, the play, yeah. same thing that you were talking about when we were talking about the TVA generals, how mm-hmm. there are a lot of um, companies that oh. have cast, or they, they've, they've thought of their... Um, their showcase or whatever they're going to produce before they've cast it. And you right. are suggesting it should be the opposite. Maybe hire the actors that you like Pay so much attention to the talent pool and take advantage of that talent pool and rather than just grabbing whatever shows you think are good because if you do that and you don't have the right cast for it, I mean, that's um, our guest last time, uh, Susan. So yeah. that, you know, the majority of directing is casting. If you have a solid cast, there's so much that happens, so much that you don't have to do as a director because they're picking it up, the material is shaping it, and that co- comes together. Mm-hmm. To pick material without paying attention to what the talent pool is, just, you know, I, I, we see the results of that all the time. And unfortunately, we see the bad results of it too often where... People are scratching their heads, going, "Why did they do this show? This, you know, this this isn't working." Right, and it's because they didn't really think about what they needed in terms of talent to make the show work. Yeah, Gary, how did you get into theater? You know, Norman and I we've shared uh, how theater sort of uh, got us out of you know where we were and how um, you know we both grew up in. I'm not going to say the ghetto, but, you know, bad parts of town, you know, whether it be... Well, I didn't grow up in bad parts of town. I just, <laughs> yeah, I just whatever. stumbled into mm-hmm. the theater. Right, right. But it's sort of, I mean... I was a new kid in town, mm-hmm. and there was no place else I felt comfortable. Right. And the same, and the same for me. Uh, and uh, But how did you... How did, how did theater grab you? Well, I, I, I had a different upbringing, I guess, is uh, fair to say. Um, I was a product of affluent white suburbia um, in the 1960s. Uh, I was in 1963. I was seven years old, and my parents. I think my dad lost his job in Philadelphia, and they decided to move out to California. And they went to this little-known small town called Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. Um, and looked all over town for an apartment that would take a kid. There was only one. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember that as a seven-year-old going place after place, apartment building after apartment mm-hmm. building, no kids, no mm-hmm. kids, no kids. Mm-hmm. And there was finally there was this one. 
and it was at the south side of, um, of Palo Alto, which is not the Palo Alto that's there now. Yeah. Were you an only child? I was an only child, yeah. yeah. And um, but I happened into that. That's how I happened into the California school system, which in the 1960s was world class. Yeah. Um, so it was. Um, I went to a, a high school that's no longer a high school called Coverly. And they had a brand new theater facility there, mm-hmm. you know, like so many um, uh, educational institutions in the late 60s, early 70s, they had these big new theaters right. at, at Cal Berkeley, you know, that Zellerbach thing. That happened in like 1970. Mm-hmm. That was when the, you know, before the Proposition 13, right. when there was all this inflow of money to this California state system of education at every level, at high schools, at um, state schools, mm-hmm. at community colleges, all the way up to Cal, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I hit that so that I went from um, Coverly to Foothill Community College, mm-hmm. they had a big new right. theater there. Yeah. And a theater program. So I was 18 years old, and there was I was going to college, and there was a theater program. Mm-hmm. A theater program in college. Back now then, that seems right. commonplace now. Right, but back but then, before, right. like about 1970, yeah, you don't, yeah, you don't go to school to and do theater, right? And get some a degree in theater, right? So that was a new idea. Mm-hmm. It cost me, I think, it was fifty dollars a semester oh, to go to Foothill. To go to Foothill, I went there, I, and and I was being in shows and learning. You know, in high school, I was in an improv troupe, and I was doing plays, and I, I was learning to be an actor. And, and that because it was there, right? And then it was there at community college. And where did I go after that? I went to San Francisco State, right? And I got there in 76, and uh, it was a a whopping, I'm pretty sure, $100 a semester. (laughs) And while I was there finishing my undergrad, Mm -hmm. Proposition 13 passed. Mm -hmm. And I remember it. Um, And, you know, it was a great thing for the taxpayers of California, I guess. Yeah. But you can draw a line from then until now and see a, a, a pride of the nations in terms of, you know, uh, school systems to right. one that is in just total at the bottom of the list. It's, just, it's in complete disarray right. now. Yeah. It's been gutted by all these political forces. Right. Um, but uh, you know, I, for good and for ill. I was part of this whole generation that found it commonplace mm-hmm. that at every level of education, after I went to, to um, San Francisco State, mm-hmm. I wound up at Cal, right. you know, in a Ph.D. program. I mean, I went through the whole thing, right. you know, when it was still affordable. Mm-hmm. And at each level, there was this education, educational structure of theater right. in schools. So now there's this abundance of people who have been educated in theater programs around the country. And, of course, there's no jobs. I mean, mean, there's a couple of jobs, but, I mean, it's completely reversed. So there's all these people with PhDs and degrees here and degrees there. There's no jobs in that 
you know, it's yeah. there. So, uh, so, but I was never interested in being an academic, really. So, if, I mean, you know, I, I went to Cal because it was a way for me to feed my writing and production habit, which mm-hmm. that's what I wanted to do, and it allowed me to do that. And I just had to write a dissertation along the way to do that. Mm-hmm. So you made the transition from wanting to act to wanting to write. I mean, is that something that you that was inside you when you were young, or did it happen when you arrived in school, like in college? Well, it started with acting, I remember. In the, uh, you know, I think it happened at summer camp, you know, around the, around the campfire when you do skits, right. you know, and that thrill of throwing something together with a, a couple of friends, mm-hmm. and you, have, you know, a, a group of kids that you're camping with, anyway, throwing something together in the afternoon and then performing it around a campfire in the evening, mm-hmm. as I expect humans have been doing for yeah. tens of thousands of years. And then having the response of the community of people watching it, the laughter, mm-hmm. the clapping, that thrill of performing, making something up and performing it, in those circumstances, was absolutely infectious, and uh, I, I loved it. And so then I pursued it in school as an actor, and uh, yeah, that that led me to my track was from as an actor. Then I went to LA to try to be a film star. That didn't work out so well. Mm-hmm. Um, in LA, it was there I turned to. When I was confronted with so so much of the work I was looking for was stuff that I had no interest in performing, right. you know, um, it led me as an actor to want to have something to do with what I was saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I turned from acting to then writing the script, yeah. and it was with myself in mind. Um, but then I had a play, and um, in order to make the play happen, I needed a director, someone to direct it, and so that attracted me to directing. So I, I went from so from acting to writing to directing. That, mm-hmm. that was my track. Too. Wow! And then for a while, I was acting, I was directing and writing stuff a lot, and now I tend more just to write. Uh, it's probably I, I, now I think it's better for me. Uh, I wouldn't say this for all writers, but. Um, for me, it's better to work with a director, I think, mm-hmm. um, so that I don't have to... It, it's it's tricky as a writer to speak directly to the actors, right. especially if they're skeptical about the material, mm-hmm. um, which they're liable to be in a premiere production of something, especially right. when it's just forming, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you haven't worked together before, an actor could be like, you want me to do what? Right. You know, I don't really understand this. And if there's that kind of relationship, it, you don't really want to be the writer going, no, it's good, trust me. <laughs> you know, um, you want a director saying, let's try this. You yeah. your cheerleader and, you know, and just being that intermediary. Right. And also the person there that the actor can say, you know, I'm not sure this works. Right. <laughs> you know, so that the director can go to the playwright and right. say, you know, Jim was telling me maybe we should really be looking at this from a different angle. You know, so you have an intermediary there. 
which creates yeah. a, a, an artistic yeah. or creative discussion. Yeah. Right. We've we've had uh, I think one of your students, Conrad Pantanabad. Wow. Uh, he was here and he was talking about. We've had a, a bunch of writers here, uh, Jeannie Baroga, oh, yeah. and yeah. Uh, also uh, Christine Lorin. Oh, yeah. Focuses on that. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting because I've talked to them about, because as a stage manager, I've been both a stage manager and an actor, I've seen where a playwright will be in the room with an actor and an actor will sort of. I don't want to say disrespectful, but they'll say, hey, can you change that? Can you change this since you're here? You know, can we do this? As if the actor is, doesn't trust the work. Right. You know, and I've always felt that if, if a playwright was dead, like, like Shakespeare, you know, that would never really happen because you treat it like the Bible. If this is what Shakespeare said, we're going to do it. And if we can't figure it out, we've got, we have to study and figure it out. But I find that with the living playwright, especially if the playwright is right there, I don't know. I, I feel that the player is sometimes maneuvered or, or manipulated a bit to get it to fit the actor. Uh, do you feel that way? Well, each production is its own, has its own chemistry, and that 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 dynamic between the actors, each actor, mm-hmm. the director, there's usually only one, mm-hmm. and the playwright, there's usually only one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really complicated. It can go in a million different directions. Um, some relationships within that nexus can be good and some can be bad. If they're all good and open and communicative, that's great. It's rare, um, but it does, you know, it's great when it happens. Conversely, if, if there's a real mismarriage in there, um, it can be really rough. But the thing is, actors are positioned, you know, each actor becomes the expert on the role. Um, They know the role by the end of the process better than the playwright does individually. Now, the playwright's going to know the whole play better than any individual actor, presumably. Mm -hmm. But each actor, you know... Yeah, they should get inside it. Yeah, they have to. They have to. They have to literally internalize the play. They mm-hmm. have to memorize it. And in right. order to memorize it, they have to examine every word. Yeah. You know, and it's like, how do I move from this thought to the next one? Yeah. Why do I say that? That's right. weird that I, I say that. Actors are asking questions that even the playwright hasn't asked. Well, they're constantly, and they're recognizing things within, you know, from scene to scene, which is. You know, I say the same thing earlier in the first scene. Do I really need to say it again? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, you do? Um, uh, you know, all sorts of things that can bring to your attention that you're not aware of. Yeah. Right. Um, and idea, right, not, as well as ideas, because, you know, characters defined by the choices that they make, you know, the things they do. And, you know, we as playwrights have in mind these choices that the characters make. They gotta make the most interesting choices, though. And sometimes right. it's like, uh, you know, I, I, an actress like, yeah, I, I, I just don't understand why I do this. Why wouldn't I do that? Right. And it's like, oh yeah, well, I guess I just assumed you would. You know, mm-hmm. um, I hadn't. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Or yeah, that's I great. know that's it's unusual. Like that's what that's right. a lot of times it's like, well, no, you don't understand. That's who this character is. Right. The thing that drives me crazy about. In that, the thing, I guess the pet peeve I have is when the actor says, no, my character wouldn't say that. Right. 
that's not, I would say to actors out there, that's not a fair thing to say to a playwright, My, you know, because we're, we're discovering who the character is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, 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 I advise actors to steer, steer away from that one. Yeah, that there are the sure times does. when the actors bring that up and they help the playwright to understand something else, but there's other times when they help the playwright to realize this other thing is really important and and I want it to be outside of everything else that's going on. I want the yeah. audience's attention to be drawn to this. I want the character to commit to this extreme position yeah. or this extreme point. But the writer may not have known or realized just quite how much tension there is in that stretch until the actor brings it up and they have to say, you have to do this. This is important to the character. We're not losing this. We're not changing this. Yeah, and you know where you often see that? Um, See, when you're developing a play, Mm -hmm. you're developing the characters and you're developing the story. What often emerges is one character is a protagonist and one character is an antagonist. Mm-hmm. Now, right. a- antagonism is, you know, the opposing force in the play. Mm-hmm. We can sort of see a through line between um, uh, antagonism moving to opponent, moving to villain, mm-hmm. right? Like the villain's at the mm-hmm. far end of the spectrum on the oppositional side. Right. There's often not a lot of interest, especially in the theater, about playing a villain. Right. But sometimes, you know, your character emerges as the one who's taking a very objectionable course of action. Right. It's the wrong thing to do, maybe. Mm-hmm. And if an actor doesn't embrace that, Right. That could be very problematic if an actor doesn't want to play the bad guy. Right. But we need a bad guy in the play. Right. That's that can be really problematic. And I think you had talked about this morning. Um, there are some actors who are like, "Ooh, I really hate." I forget who the person. There was a person who we had on who said, "I had to blur." It was you. You said, "I had to love the character." You know. Oh, yeah. I think. I think. Um, the example that I often use is um, I got to do the last season of season of Nash Bridges, and I played a serial rapist. Wow. And I don't rape anybody. Yeah. It's not even represented, in the, but that's the backstory for the character. But the character is seen because he's just gotten out of jail, and apparently it was so good to him that he has gone back to try and rape the same woman a third time. She calls the police as she's running from him. The police show up, and I'm dead. Wow. And that launched that particular episode. Huh. And I'm like, well, so what is this about? And what do I need to do? Well, I'm not a method actor. I'm not going to go out and suddenly start raping women all over the place so I can experience his character. Good choice. But I, <laughs> but I know that he enjoys, he is gleeful about this moment of chase and pursuit. And I've been that. I can totally do it. So a friend saw the episode, and they said it was so, they didn't say creepy, but they said it was so weird. Because I was giggling, and it wasn't a conscious choice, but I was giggling throughout that opening sequence. Because I know we're alone, there's nobody else in the building, I know her, I've been with her before, and I'm probably going to catch her again. I'm almost on top of her. I'm just enjoying that sense of sort of playground, whatever, and that's what I brought to the character. 
I could judge the character. I could try to think about what kind of human being this character is. That really isn't going to help me perform what I need to perform. The story isn't about that. So I need to make sure that I can embrace something that makes this character come to life. And if people get a little weirded out by it or creeped out by it, then I did my job. Yeah, that's your job. I, and I'm really clear that that's not me. Yeah. I have a question for you, Norman, because as Gary was talking about the relationship between the playwright, the director, and the actor, I thought about you because you work with budding playwrights who are working, oh, whether it be Richard Talavera or Jimmy Baroga. Or what I just finished, yeah. Right, exactly. Does it get a little dicey uh, because you're working with the actors and with the, I mean, what's what's the conversation like when so things I'll, don't work? I'll talk about young playwrights because that's what I just finished. I did Eugene O'Neill. We did a summer intensive. It was um, high school kids, mostly juniors, seniors, and graduating seniors, high school kids. Um, we had five writers. We had one little boy who knew what he thought the play should be, and he was on his feet throughout the rehearsal process, <laughs> correcting and adjusting and saying yes and no to everything. <laughs> and the poor director, I had passed it on to one of my colleagues to direct that particular piece, and every time I came in, I saw this kid was on his feet and quick to say yes and no to stuff. It worked. It was great. But it was very different dynamic. I was directing a piece where the young playwright wasn't saying anything. And she'd written one of the things that is my pet peeve. Um, when somebody writes a piece where it's just incredibly episodic, and what they envision in their mind is lights down, scene change, lights up. And by the time you've done that half a dozen times, the audience is ready to go home. They're tired. They're sleepy. They're out of the story because you just invited them to leave the story half a dozen times. Commercial breaks. It was horrible. So I didn't even consult with her. I just said, okay, so we'll have a bell ring. Uh, what you guys are doing is going through the course, and it was kids in a hallway, high school hallway. Um, and it was supposed to be two friends talking to each other throughout the course of a day. I was like, nope. The first bell, you guys come in, we have that little scene. Before you can get off stage, these people stop you, you have that conversation. She has been stopped over in the other corner. She has her conversation. We can go back and forth. Then you both meet back downstage. You have your conversation. Then the boyfriend enters. Everybody exits except for the gossips. And I initially directed it as it was written. And by the second rehearsal, I was just cutting exits. Nope, you're not leaving. Nope, you're not going anyplace. You're just going over here. You're going over there. And then I would stop after I did it and say to the playwright, was that okay? Because what I'm trying to avoid is that sense that we're making the story too choppy. Um, am I missing something? Am I losing something in your intent? Is there a moment that needs to be that? Because if you need it to have a clear end, so be it. Well, you know, we'll work around it. I'll work around it. But my sense is this is the story you're trying to tell. And, you know, I'm she, was sure she, liked it. she was a kid, so she wasn't willing to push back. I've, I've had playwrights push back. And what I love is that conversation becomes very fruitful because the play is a, the tip of an iceberg. And the playwright doesn't realize how much is under the water. And sometimes when they make clear to you how large that mass is, you can say, well, like I did, um, one of the other plays had a character who didn't come on stage. We heard an off-stage voice, and a piece of crumpled up paper was thrown on stage. And I said, what was that? Oh, that's because that's how pissed off that character was. I said, you know what? Can we have the character walk in? They don't have to say anything. But after we've heard their voice, and everybody else has said, let's get out of here, 
uh, and they've left, can we have that character walk in so we can see them, see their frustration, and then have them walk out, out again? My guy was like, oh, and I said, because the crumpled piece of paper doesn't tell us what you're trying to tell us. So I'm always trying to stay true to what I think the playwright is saying, but I love it when the playwright educates me <laughs> so I can then educate my cast as to what that bigger shape is that we're only hinting at. And what I find interesting, especially having taken your class, Gary, a lot of budding playwrights like me, we think in our heads. We think, well, of course the actor is going to think exactly what I'm thinking, but the director is going to think my vision will show. And it, it oftentimes it doesn't. So you have to fix, Norman, that problem. Yeah. Because the playwright thought, well, people will get it. They'll, I threw a paper and the person's angry. But no one else is, is thinking that way. Do you find that... Sometimes the collaboration is so important to a, a budding playwright to get out of your head. Well, let me, let me throw one more thing sure. in for a response to that, and that's this. Um, often I talk to playwrights. In fact, I fought with a friend, good friend playwright. <laughs> and we had, she, afterwards, we talked on the phone because I knew she was mad. And she said, you were yelling at me. We were in a park. There were lots of sounds around. I was like, well, as an actor, I was thinking, no, you don't know the sound that I can make when I'm yelling. <laughs> I was just emphatic. But what I was emphatic about was, what do you want this to be? You're asking me to direct your piece. Is this a reading so that you, the playwright, can hear it as interpreted by other people, and that's what we're doing? Or is this a piece that we're trying to polish up and put in front of an audience as a finished piece? Because as a director, if you're asking me for the latter, I'm going to twist your arm and push you to get what I think is a finished show. If you just want to see what you've got, I'm going to try and stay as true to it as I can. I will ask lots of questions where it doesn't make sense or doesn't come together for me. And I will try to take your answers as is and present that on stage. But those are two different animals. And she wasn't getting that. And I was like, don't ask me to direct your piece if you don't know what you're asking me to do as a director. Right. So what do you think, Gary? I mean, do you think that, and I, I, I totally hear your point, you know, like, like an objective of a play reading is not that it's a finished product and to get the audience to applause or whatever. It's just to see what works and what doesn't work as opposed to a finished product. But do you find that playwrights are so much in their heads and they try to convey so much? Should there be collaboration, I guess? Should there has to be. I, I, when you're working in a theater, it's all about collaboration. And if you don't want to collaborate, probably shouldn't work in the theater, but um, I, I, would, I would sort of sort out those issues as we rely upon the playwright to come up with the story. I'm a big story guy. I think story is really important. And then it's the director's job to figure out how to best tell that story. Because there's, you know, like when you're talking about picking it, you know, cutting out the excess and the interruptions and stuff and speeding up the tempo and the energy of right. the thing, that's the way you're telling basically the same story. You're not really changing the story, but you're changing the way it's told and making it more theatrical or making it more dramatic or making right. it funnier. And not TV film where you could do those cuts that would make that other version work. Mm -hmm. So, so the playwrights asking many of the sorts of questions you were just describing, I think, Norman, to get at, so what is the story? <laughs> what, what is the story here? And then I'll try to figure out the best way to tell it, the most dramatic, the most 
the swiftest, the, you know, I'm, I'll find the pace of it, which is usually picking it up a lot, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and then there's this third major component, which is what the actors provide, which is the interpretation of their individual characters, you know. So um, that interplay between the director and the writer is, you know, usually quite complicated. And it's like a marriage, really. You know, it's got to be good. It, it's got to be a good. It's got to be a good give and take relationship, and there has to be a foundation of trust. Right. And that's true between <clears throat> in the relationship with the um, with everybody in the whole thing. You know, um, it, it, the whole process where the process always breaks down is in when there's a trust deficit. Mm-hmm. You start to think, oh, shit, she can't do this. Right. Oh, Christ. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to, you know, take a whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then every, you know, that's when it really gets rough. Um, and, and that's when it all breaks down. So you got to keep telling yourself, when you get scared, you know, it's going to be okay. Just trust, <laughs> just trust the people I asked to do this. Trust them. We've got to trust each other. Yeah, I've been in a lot of bad productions, and I think about what made it bad. Usually one person thinks that they're smarter than everyone else, and there is that lack of trust. And then, you know, everyone's like, oh, goodness, I just can't wait for this thing to be be in, to end. Yeah, Um, that's a horrible thing. Right. But the best of of the ones are the ones, like, I think about a Central Works piece, where there is so much uh, richness uh, you know that this is an in-depth story, you know, whether it be Mesmeric Revelation or Winter, because it is a play that has been crafted from the top up. You know, everyone is involved in it. Is, these are not just actors who were just given a script, get off your line, you know, do your line, do your blocking, and, you know, whatever. They were involved, if it's part of the, the central work process, from from the beginning to the end, everyone is. Mm-hmm. Um uh, well, the last thing I want to throw at you, Gary, um, is to, because I've been around Central Works for a while, and and we often talk about other companies and companies that have come and gone, the, the sort of evolution of Bay Area Theater. I mean, the way you talk about the way you came up, you came up as all these companies were just getting up on their hind legs, the Magic, Berkeley Rep, ACT, just, you know, by, this, by the 70s, they were, even the mind truth starting to become these entities that they are now. Um, and I find myself as a theater artist knowing at the same time all the other companies that were here for a little while, Eureka just, you know, rolled up their thing and said they were done. Um, where would you see Central Works in that mix? And who do you see, what are the new theater companies that are kind of getting your attention? Well, the, the thing about theater is it's like a lot of economic endeavors. Um, you know, the real estate is kind of first. Um, yeah, it's about the money. It's about the money, but it's well, also it's the, the facility. Yeah, I mean, it's, facility. It's, it's the play factory as a theater, you know, um, or a theater is, a, is, is the facility you require in order to do theater. Mm-hmm. And if you have to rent... You're at a huge disadvantage in terms of the economic potential versus if you own 
sorts of things. Mm -hmm. There's longevity, there's consistency, you can build programming, you can build an audience. Mm -hmm. If you have to rant from show to show, you become itinerant, and it becomes really, really difficult. Maybe you don't have the overhead of owning the facility, but you also don't have all the advantages of a stable location, which people can predict that you know, things are going to be cranked out on some right. some regular basis. They can decide whether or not they like to go there. And if they do, they probably won't care that much, so much about what the play is because they trust the organization. They become a subscriber or a member or an affiliate of some mm-hmm. sort. And that's how you, you build a following. Um, so, you know, that, that's just an, an economic view of theater. For for Central Works, I think one of the most interesting things that we've been a part of lately is the National New Play Network. That I has know been fantastic. Have you guys talked about that? We have not talked about it. We, you know, definitely say more. The National New Play Network is, um, it's a, I think it's about, I don't exactly know how many theaters it is, but it's like uh, maybe 150 theaters across, across the country. Across the country. Mm-hmm who are part of this network. And what they do is they circulate plays that have not been written, new plays, and they have a model called a rolling world premiere. Haven't been produced. Have not been produced. Plays that have not been produced. Right. Um, One of the big problems for both playwrights and theaters, particularly small theaters, Mm -hmm. is once you get a play done once, you can get, uh, you know, there's quite a bit of interest on theaters about doing the world premiere of a play. Right. They like the prestige of that. They like mm-hmm. the adventure of that. They like the the idea of doing a world premiere is very widely attractive to theaters. Though usually not, the, that's not all they want to do because they recognize it's also the riskiest form. Mm-hmm. But no one wants to do the play the second time, right? Because it's not a world premiere. And if it hasn't lit the country on fire, it's like, I'll go searching for gold someplace else. Right. Mm -hmm. So what the Rolling World premiere does, it says, if you can get a minimum of three theaters to open the play within the space of a year, they can all share the world premiere credit. And there's separate productions. The playwright may is free but not is not obligated to move from theater to theater. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine what that affords the playwright in terms of three different production a minimum of three different productions of the play across the nation. Right. Seeing it in one venue with one cast developed, right. then taking what you learn, applying it to the next one and then the next one. This is a really good thing yeah, for the playwright. So it expands this idea of the world premiere. From the theater's point of view, it means I can compete, Central Works, Mm -hmm. we can compete with um, the arena stage in Washington, D.C. for a play by a nationally known playwright who 
you know, does no longer has to choose, well, who's the highest bidder for my play? Right. But rather, who all wants to do it in the space of a year so I can spread it across the whole country? Mm-hmm. Good for the small theaters, the smaller theaters. Mm-hmm. Good for the playwrights. Right. Um, and it opens up this idea of a world premiere. Um, so, that, and Winter, the, our current play, yeah, is a rolling world it's premiere. It's fantastic. Yeah. I was going to say, it's, it's, it's like, our second. It's yeah. our second. Oh, because the other one was the, uh, the To the North? Yeah, Into the Beautiful North. Oh, my gosh. It was a great, oh, stage, right. great experience. You great. said Richard, Richard Talbert was in it. Richard, yes, was. Richard was in it. And, and not just that, it just was, <laughs> it's a fantastic use of the space. Um, this story just explodes all over the place. Um, it's a relatively small cast, but boy, they were busy. It was big for us. It was uh, seven, yeah, which is large for us. For, for that space. Um, but no, it was fantastic, and it was wonderful to see, to think, okay, this isn't just you guys doing this play. There are other places in the country paying attention to the same thing. It yeah. just allows you to do a whole different type of publicity. Yeah. It, it's like a theater version of the, the circuit. I mean, like in music. You yeah. have uh, right. bands who will right. go to, I don't want to say the Chitlin circuit, but, you know, in like a black no, they music. go to the big towns, but in right. between, like they call roadhouses. And this and that and the Alameda had a, a roadhouse that just got converted into, oh gosh, it's like a security firm or something now. And it had been a roadhouse for the longest time. Right. And when I talked to people who knew the place, they were like, yeah, back in the day, a band that had a little bit of time between point A and point B would roll through there. Yeah, and this is a theater version of it. I think that's it one is. of It's got to be very competitive. I mean, you know, if you're a playwright, it's to, to get in. Because I'm sure there are a bunch of play, players who are like, oh. Well, it is linked up with a sister organization called the New Play Exchange, okay. which is now a huge database of new plays um, that is nationwide that has hundreds of playwrights connected to it, but it's got, it's, it's a great database, a way for people to find plays or for um, for playwrights to find theaters. But the two organizations are sort of linked together. So I get every month, I get a, you know, a posting of all the theaters that are putting up plays for Rolling World premieres. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it'll be like, 20 or 30 plays. Sure. And some of them will have no other theaters attached to them. Some of them will have one, some will have two, and they need that third one. And you're reading little blurbs and little stats about, you know, mm-hmm. who's in how, what's the cast size. Right. Um, and that's how I found Into the Beautiful North because I saw it was an adaptation of a, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a play, I mean, excuse me, a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was written by uh, Karen Zacharias, and it just captured my imagination. We went from there, and it was really great experience. And the same thing happened with uh, Winter. Um, so it's it's been it's been a good thing for us. No, it's exciting because that that sort of in a very specific way answers my question about Central Works. Because what I what I think of is I remember the Aurora working in that space, and then moving across town, and. It's exciting to see how a small a company that's willing to... Because the other thing that you guys do not toot your horn about enough is very aware of the talent pool. You take advantage of the talent. And I shouldn't say take advantage. It's not the right thing. You showcase the talent pool. You give people these wonderfully needy roles in this wonderfully small venue where the acting has to be on because the audience is this close, you know, almost touching knees 
with what's going on in the, in the performance space. And that, to me, is a wonderful way, a beautiful way to take advantage of this talent pool and say, this is what Bay Area Theater is. So on top of whatever plays you pick or whatever stories you guys are developing, you're taking advantage of that fertile talent and saying, here's who we are. I, I just love watching Central Works continue to evolve. Well, we foreground the actors, the actors' work. We, we, we focus on the plays and the, perf- the performance, the actors, um, in very modest, but we like to think carefully chosen, uh, you know, production values. Um, but we, it's kind of like I've often used the analogy, it's a, it's like a film shot in close-up. You know, it's, a, yeah. it's, a really, it's a really fun performance situation for an actor because you're so close to the audience and you can, you know, afford to be really sort of intimate in your approach to the well, role. And, they're and the audience is, is, you know, really appreciates that. They love that. There are acting styles that you guys have developed. I mean, I talk about bombs in my acting classes because... That's where I learned it. The difference between standing one step back where you're parallel with the audience, and that means people can look up and see you, mm-hmm. and one step forward where people are looking at your butt. Yeah. And you can see it throughout the process. Actors who get frustrated when you say, no, you have to step back. Just step back one foot. Mm-hmm. Just step back. And they're like, no, but why can't I be here? Trust us. We know the space. Step back. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think about Ms. Merrick. You know, there. I think there are a couple of scenes where an actor is right there at the door, mm-hmm. you know, just having walked right. in, and they can just, you know, do a scene right there and right still there. be just as um, as um, as effective. The people across the, the room are seeing them at no farther distance exactly. than they are any performance, any place else. Yeah. And, yeah, once the actors learn to trust that, the actors who do it mm-hmm. and really trust it, oh, my gosh, it's so gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the business model works. I mean, you guys haven't had some of the problems that other companies have had getting audiences in. Um, well, we've been at it a long time. But the business model that we've used is one of keeping it small, keeping it tight, keeping it a skeleton crew in which, you know, it's a small bunch of people trying to make big plays mm-hmm. um, in a very intimate venue. Um, it's small quantity, high quality, though. Well, right. That's, that's what we like to think. Um, we have a for quite a vital subscriber audience, um, they know, you know, when you're doing new plays, there isn't anything more difficult to promote right. than plays no one has ever heard of before by writers that they've never heard of right. before. Yeah. Um, that's not the way the theater works. The theater works the other way around. Mm-hmm. The, the, the plays emerge and go to New York or London and then get, in effect, published across our country, right. and pretty much, you know, mm-hmm. people go see the place that have been through that process right, right. because they've heard this is the big new show. Yeah, Hamilton, you know. Right. Well, sure, yeah. Um, so that's the way it works. There's nothing wrong with that. I, mean, right. I understand the logic of that. Yeah. But that makes doing a new play that no one's ever heard of Regional by someone who's they've never heard of, a very difficult sell. So we've tried to sell a a brand of production Mm -hmm. so that people, they're coming to plays, they they, they don't know what they're going to see. So 
they're coming because they like what we do. Right. You know? And they talk to you about it afterwards. <laughs> I, I, and I cannot go to a show there without having a conversation with the audience afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's wonderful to have a company to trust because we've talked about how a lot of companies will not trust a new theater piece. Right. They're like, no, no, we want to do the standard operating thing because we want to bring the audience in. So it's wonderful to have a company like Central Works. We're gonna, we're gonna have, we have faith in your piece and we're going to do it. Yeah. yeah. Shout outs? Um, I, because I just came off of this, this was an intensive, this Eugene O'Neill thing. Ten days, eight to three, me in charge of it. I'm, I'm almost burnt. And I've had a couple of days to kind of recover. Um, this weekend I am doing um, Each One Reach One. Uh, the juvenile hall thing, and I'm just going in as an actor for once. Um, and so I'll get to deal with new material again. <laughs> we'll do a whole set of plays tomorrow, and uh, sit down read of these plays by young men, La Pepin Juvenile Hall, so that'll be fun. And then on Sunday, I am doing what is an in-house read for uh, Teatro, and I'm going to mess up the name, Teatro Bagon, B-A-G-O-N. It's in San Francisco, and um, they're looking at a new piece. Um, Murietta Joaquin. Oh, yeah, Joaquin Murietta. Yeah, so there's a, there's a piece. So I'm, I'm interested to see what's happening with that. And beyond that, yeah, I'm just looking forward to taking some time off. <laughs> yeah, well, good for you. Um, I don't have a oh, lot. Oh, I do have one other one. Yeah, it's because it's, um, they're just finishing up a Tender Napalm. That's on trial. At the uh, Tennis Colored Center. Estes, Robert Estes. Uh, Robert Estes. Oh, that's yeah. Yeah. Um, they, uh, It's this weekend, which I can't go because of these other projects. And then next weekend, next Friday, Saturday. So Friday, Saturday, this weekend, Friday, Saturday, next week, I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to talk to you about see all the time we're going to work next Friday because oh. I'm going to try to get to the show. Oh, okay. Well, well that's hey, it. That's my shout out. Got it. Shoutouts I have, there are not one, not two, but three Hamlets going on <laughs> right at, at, as we speak. San Francisco Shakes in the Park, uh, my good friend Radhika Rao, she was on the show uh, a couple of um, episodes ago. She is uh, doing that SF Shakes uh, in the Park. Uh, this time it's Memorial Park, uh, July the 28th, which is today, uh, 29th and 30th, and also August 4th through 6th. Uh, we'll put a, uh, a link, sfshakes.org. Memorial for Cupertino? I think so. They, they move around, huh? No, I know. They yeah. I think it's Cupertino, yeah. Also, who's also doing um, Hamlet is Ninjas of Drama. That's at the Phoenix Theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, July the 27th through the 30th, also August 3 through the 5th. That's yeah, the last I week. saw that. Alan, Alan Casmorio was in it, yeah. Yeah, Alan Casmorio, who was the founder, one of the founders of Bindlestiff. So that's how I know him. Mm-hmm. Um, also uh, edited by David Abad, uh, someone that we oh, know. okay. And uh, danced by Lisa Darter, who I've uh, worked with. Oh. Uh, we were, um, I think we did the Texas Chainsaw musical. Oh, right. <laughs> and the third um, Hamlet uh, is Silicon Valley Shakes performing Ham- Hamlet at the Sanborn Park in Saratoga. All female cast. July uh, the 28th through September the 1st. Wow. svshakespeare.org slash tickets. All female Hamlet. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Um, Dale Albright has a birthday tomorrow. He mentioned that uh, right. when he was on. He'll yeah. be 50, so I want to wish him a happy birthday. Happy birthday, Dale. 
And I want to thank everyone who uh, came out for uh, the play reading that I had uh, for Men in Paris. Actually, I did a bit of it in the workshop that well, with you, you know, yeah. um, the expansioning of uh, Richard Wright and a bunch oh, of the other uh, writers. So oh, that's wonderful. Wow. What about you, Barry? I, I, so you've got winter. What? Anything else going on? Yeah, winter plays through. Let's see, uh, one, two, two more weekends. I think that's. I think that's August fifteenth. And then uh, our next show, our fall show, is called Strange Ladies, which is a new play by Susan Sobeloff um, that Jans Feifler is directing. It has a, divi- a diverse cast of six women who tell the story of the, uh, a band of suffragettes during the First World War who are fighting awesome. for uh, votes for women. That that is awesome. I would love to. Yeah, building up to the nineteenth uh, amendment, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And you put the website out? www.centralworks.org. Yeah, and we will put a link. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I want to thank everyone for uh, listening to the Yay. Uh, it's a show that's you know we're developing. You can also you listen to it on the Apple iTunes uh, app, and uh, if, or if you on um, if you use Android. You can use uh, SoundCloud, the SoundCloud uh, app, mm-hmm. or if you, you know, are more traditional and you want to listen to this uh, via your desktop or laptop, you just go to SoundCloud.com. And uh, thank you so much, Gary. I hope you had a wonderful time. Yeah, yeah. 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 it's been fun. <laughs> it's been really fun, you guys. Yeah, real pleasure. Absolutely, it's been a pleasure having you here. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to find a better side. <laughs> <laughs>